0: I probably underestimated our numbers. I have two more sheets out there, and I see two more people walking in. So, But we will make it work. Yeah, if there's anyone that can share. Hmm, not that one. I'll probably be good there. If you can share the notes, that would be good. I'll just know to run more off next time. Yeah, just set them back there. First week is always a guess as to how many are going to be here, and I guessed low. So. <laughs> Everyone likes Revelation. You like the suntan? I had to work to get this one. <laughs> Usually we just use mortar as suntan lotion. So, <laughs> so. well, let's uh, let's get started. I think uh, everyone has. Do you have the uh, you have the notes and this? Possibly share if you can. Um, <coughs> and I'll make sure I have more of these next time because uh, we'll refer to them as we uh, throughout uh, our study. Uh, we are going through the Book of Revelation. Uh, we're going to spend about ten weeks. Going through this book, so we will move kind of quickly. Some things we will skim over, some we might dig a little deeper into. Um, always stop for questions. So if you have a question, you by all means ask it. Um, if I don't know the answer right now, I will find out and we'll answer it the following week. Um, again, you can always jot your question down and hand it to me if you don't want to ask it out loud, or drop me an email, or give me a call during the week, or anything. I want to answer questions. Um, I would rather teach a class that's just you ask and I'll answer rather than coming up. Then I know I'm giving you what you really want and need. Um, So uh, (coughs) this is... uh, How many of you have done a study of the book of Revelation before? Uh, What are you doing here now then? Good grief, you should be up here. (laughs) You only have to go through it once and then you got it, right? Um, (laughs) We had a... uh, a class in Bible college uh, in preparation for ministry called Daniel and Revelation. That was the class. It was a whole semester, and we spent on the book of Daniel and the book of Revelation because they go together so well with uh, the prophecy. And uh, the professor, (coughs) and I've shared him before, Dr. Wes Gehrig, handed the syllabus out, and the first section of the syllabus was his translation of the book of Revelation. That's what we used in class, um, was his translation. He translated it himself from the Greek. And uh, he was one of the ones, he was on the team of scholars who translated the NIV, working on the book of Mark and the book of Revelation was the two books he worked on in the translation. So uh, I I feel going through that class, uh, we got a pretty good handle on, uh, on what Revelation was all about. This is the first time... I have actually taught the book uh, in twenty five years of ministry i've never never bit it off before, and uh, so we are uh, we're taking bites uh, this time so let 's open with a word of prayer and then we will jump into as you always have to do that first week kind of lay out some introduction and uh, some background before we really uh, jump in and get going. Father, we are thankful for your word that you have seen to give us uh, your word that you have as as we've, as you've told Peter to tell us, you've given us everything we need uh, to live a godly life, and uh, Father, this book that we are about to uh, to start a journey through uh, is one that points us ahead, uh, that points us into the future, that gives us a hope, and uh, Father, we know that uh, it's not always easy, uh, but we pray that your Holy Spirit would teach us uh, as He wrote it, as He gave the words to. John, we just pray that you would open those words to us, make them come alive, uh, that we would better understand what you're going to do in the future that will help us live the way we are to live today. Uh, So, Father, may your Holy Spirit come and uh, fill this place. And we pray it all in Jesus' name. Amen. Some introductory matters. One is that this is, uh, Revelation is a different book, different from... Any of the other books uh, it 's closely related to Daniel um, in subject matter, but the way in which it is written is drastically different than any other book in the Bible, which is probably part of why it piques so much interest, uh, a lot of symbolism, uh, a lot of numbers, uh, and what do they mean and we 'll get into that a little bit, but i 'm not jumping way in to the numerology of it um, and uh, But what we need to understand is that That this is apocalyptic literature, is what it's called. And apocalyptic literature, best definition, is a supernatural divine uncovering of that which is to take place, usually through a heavenly mediator, that's how it's given, to some prominent figure in the past in which God promises to intervene in human history to bring times of trouble to an end and destroy all wickedness. That's apocalyptic literature. Okay, so it's supernatural, divine uncovering. That's the revealing. That's why we call it revelation. It's a revealing. Okay, God has sent his angel. He sent an angel to John, and he's going to reveal what is going to happen in the future, what he is going to do. And it does deal with his conquering of evil, his overcoming of of wickedness and destroying it and bringing an end to suffering. Um, and so God is going to get, I mean, God is involved right now in human history. But when the, the events of this book begin to take place, he's going to get really involved. Okay, it's going to be completely hands-on. Not to where you wonder if God is working. You're going to see it. I mean, it's going to be right there. Um, and uh, there will be no doubt. So it is apocalyptic literature, that, and, and no other book uh, in the Bible comes under that category. Also, I, wanna, I want to deal with, because I, I know there's a, a lot of, uh, <coughs> and I even, I catch myself doing it. In fact, we put it up on the screen this morning incorrectly, and I didn't catch it. Um, it is called revelation, singular. It's not revelations. There's only one reveal, okay? There's only one revelation that is given. But we have a tendency to call it the book of revelations, and it's not. I know that's a picky thing, but we might as well get it right from the start, okay? And it's also sometimes called the revelation of John. It's not. John didn't reveal anything. He received it. It's the revelation of Jesus. Jesus is the one that is revealing. Um, and so we, we need to understand that it is not, uh, not plural, There's only one, and it's not the revelation of John. John received it, but he didn't come up with it. This isn't something he came up with in his own mind. Um, But it is an unveiling. That's what revelation means. It's an unveiling, an uncovering uh, of something. So he's making it visible. Okay, so the angel comes to John, says the revelation of Jesus Christ, chapter 1, verse 1, which God gave him, While some people get freaked out and a little scared when they go through revelation, there's no need to because it's, it's one book that says there's a blessing on the one who hears it. there's a blessing on the one who reads it and who will take it to heart and, and prepare for it. Um, and so really, these next ten weeks ought to be just pure blessing for us uh, as we as we begin to uncover this this revealing truth uh, that God uh, made sure that John had. And wrote down. Now, there are are key scriptures that that go with this, and we will probably go back and forth between them throughout our study. Um, So, not only reading the book of Revelation, but it would be advantageous to you if you read these other scriptures as well that I have listed there. Matthew chapter 24 and 25, probably two of the best chapters uh, dealing with end times, uh, dealing with what is going to happen. Um, they are the words of Jesus. It's, uh, he is on uh, the Mount of Olives uh, preparing to go. He knows he is about to leave, and he is sharing uh, with his disciples what's going to happen. It says, Jesus left the temple and was walking away when his disciples came up to him to call his attention to its buildings. Do you see all these things? He asked. I tell you the truth, not one stone here Will be left on another. Everyone will be thrown down. As Jesus was sitting on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately. Tell us, they said, when will this happen? And what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? And then he goes on for the next two chapters and reveals to them, he kind of uncovers what are some things that are going to have to happen before Jesus comes, before he returns. Um, so that is called the Olivet Discourse. Um, because he is on the Mount of Olives and he is giving them, uh, he's kind of lecturing them on what the end times are going to be. So Matthew chapter 24 and 25 are key uh, to go along with the book of Revelation. Mark 13 and Luke 21 is a shorter version. Um, Mark and Luke both share that Olivet Discourse, but it's not nearly as lengthy, not nearly as in as in as much detail as what Matthew does. 1 Corinthians 15 is Paul's defense of the resurrection of the dead, talking about there is going to be a resurrection. Uh, I preached on that a few weeks ago, um, that uh, there, there is a resurrection. And so if there is a resurrection, then what happens at the resurrection or pertaining to the resurrection? And that's part of what Revelation is all about. 2 Corinthians 5, uh, Paul's discussion of the intermediate state. Otherwise, what happens if I die now? Before the resurrection, Paul kinds of give, kind of gives a, a discourse there in 2 Corinthians chapter 5 on that intermediate state uh, the between death and uh, resurrection. 1 Thessalonians chapters 4 and 5, Paul's teaching on the Christian dead and the coming of Jesus. Uh, I use uh, 1 cor- Corinthians chapter 4, at I, th- I don't know of a funeral I haven't used that at. Uh, Brothers, we do not want you to be ignorant about those who fall asleep. Now, that was Paul's way of saying who have died. Uh, I don't know why he uses fall asleep, but that's what he uses. And it's really led to some wrong theology about um, death sleep and people don't really die. They just go to sleep and no, you die. You stop breathing. Your body stops. Um, But he, for whatever reason, calls it falling asleep. So, brothers, we do not want you to be ignorant about those who fall asleep or to grieve like the rest of men who have no hope. We believe that Jesus died and rose again, and so we believe that God will bring with Jesus those who have fallen asleep in him. According to the Lord's own word, we tell you that we who are still alive, who are left till the coming of the Lord, will certainly not precede those who have already died or those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will come down from heaven with a loud command with the voice of our archangel, and with the trumpet call of God and the dead in Christ will rise first. After that, we who are still alive and are left will be caught up with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will be with the Lord forever. Therefore, encourage each other with these words. Um, great encouragement when you're look, faced standing in front of a coffin or in, a, in front of a casket of someone who has died in the Lord, um, that there is hope. And, and Paul says, I don't want you to be ignorant about what happens in this intermediate state and what's going to happen uh, in the future. Uh, so those are another key, uh, key passage. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, uh, Paul's correction that the coming of Christ may be very soon. The problem was people were living as if it, were real, it weren't really going to happen or it was going to be a long way off, and so I don't need to worry about it. Okay. So if we believe that Christ's return is a long way off, then we're probably going to be less apt to live as if it were tomorrow or as if it were today, as if it were before we go to bed tonight. Uh, And so people there were thinking, we're we're pushing it way back. And they were saying, oh, he's not going to return. He's not going to return. We can do whatever we want right now, and then we'll get serious right before we die. Well, that's okay. It's a gamble. Uh, I suppose you could live your life that way, but you miss out on so many of the blessings that Christ wants, that Christ wants to give us. And so Paul is, is trying to correct that, that, that it is coming very soon. Second Timothy chapter 3, Paul's teaching uh, of the horrible, horribly sinful times leading up to the coming of Christ. <coughs> Some teach that things are just going to get better and better and better and better, and Christ just can't stay away. Um, it's either the Mormons or the Jehovah Witnesses. I don't remember which one comes to your door and tells you those things. That it's just going to get better and better and life with Jesus is just going to be better and better and better to the point to where Jesus just can't stay away. It's so good. Well, then for the last however many years, we've been going in the wrong direction. Uh, it's going to have to make a real quick turn here at some point. That's not true. Revelation is very clear that things are going to get worse and worse and worse and worse and almost unbearably worse. And if it weren't for the Holy Spirit, if he did not cut short those days, no one would survive them. I mean, he tells us that, that if God had not cut short those days, then no one would survive. That's how bad it's going to get. Now, that sounds horrible. Oh, that's bad. But in the midst of it, God is good. Jesus is returning. And that's the hope that we have, um, that this life is short, relatively short. Um, 2 Peter chapter 3, scoffers and skeptics will come. Uh, he says the Lord is not slow in keeping his promises. The day of the Lord is coming, and it is coming. We are closer to it today than we were yesterday, um, and, and we even have that tendency to push it out there. You know, he hasn't come in 2,000 years. Paul thought it was going to be in his lifetime. Uh, the, most generations, because things have gotten so bad, Most generations have been convinced that it's going to be in their lifetime. Um, There's going to be a generation that's right. (laughs) It will be in their lifetime. But we have to live as if it is very, very soon. We have to live with an urgency that Christ is coming and that He's going to put an end to suffering, but He's also going to put an end to the chances for people to accept Him. Because once He returns deals are all off. When he returns and and, and that final judgment is given, people aren't going to have the opportunity to change their mind, to accept him at that point. And so we have work to be done now leading up to that day. Uh, And so there is an urgency that we need to live with. Some key terms. (coughs) Key terms that we need to understand, and again, we're going to We're going to go through these uh, from time to time. These terms will come up throughout the study. Um, The first is the Great Tribulation. Uh, This is that seven-year period of suffering uh, that will be suffering like we've never, that the earth has never known before. Uh, It's never gotten that bad. Those seven years are just going to be horrible. And the last three and a half are going to be the worst because there's there's a significant event in the middle. Uh, Daniel talks about it, that after three and a half years, the uh, abomination of desolation sets himself up in the temple, sets himself up as God, and uh, begins to rule the world from there. And he's going to do horrible, horrible things. So that last three and a half years of the Great Tribulation is by far... The worst, but it's a seven-year period. Daniel talks about it, um, and it's also uh, talked about in the Revelation. Uh, the Rapture. The Rapture is the coming of Christ for His bride. Okay, the Bible doesn't ever really it doesn't use the word rapture, um, so some people say, "Well, we can't believe in it because it doesn't use it." The Bible also doesn't use the word Trinity, but it teaches the principle. Um, and so rapture is also taught. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 51. Listen, I tell you a mystery. We will not all sleep, but we will all be changed in a flash, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet. Okay, boom, rapture, gone. In an instant, when Christ returns, it's a blink of an eye, and the believers are gone. They, they go to meet him in the air. And so this is the coming of Christ for his bride. It's a snatching away uh, of the church. Um, the New Testament talks about, you know, there will be two in the field. One is taken, one is left. There will be, you know, that, that's the rapture that they're, that they're referring to. Uh, that in that instant, in the twinkling of an eye, in the blink of an eye, uh, the believers will all be gone. Uh, and you've seen the bumper stickers, you know, in case of rapture, this car's unmanned or whatever the bumper sticker says. Um, that's the way it will be. Now, there are three views as to when that rapture is going to take place. Okay? Because everyone's got an idea. Uh, and so there are three views. There is the pre-trib. I think I've left the blanks for these. The pre-trib says that this is the belief that the rapture is going to take place before the tribulation starts. Okay? That, that the rapture, that those believers are going to be caught up into the air, and then the tribulation starts. Okay, that's pre-trib. Mid-trib is that at the three-and-a-half-year mark, before things get really bad, the church will be raptured. And then there is post-trib. That means that the church is going to go through the tribulation, and at the end of the tribulation, Christ returns the church is caught up in the air. Uh, Christ returns, the church is raptured, and then everyone comes back um, for the millennium. We'll talk about that in just a little bit. Um, and so in that post-trib is that while the, while the tribulation is happening, that God protects the church from, that, from the wrath of God. As the, as the wrath of God is being poured out uh, through that tribulation, he protects the church from it. Um, and that has precedent, okay? Post-Tribbers, that has precedent because he did the same thing with the nation of Israel when he, cast, when he poured out the ten plagues, uh, if you remember that, um, and he kept, protected Israel from those plagues. After the third or fourth one, yeah. Then they did not suffer uh, the plagues. He, he protected them from it you will undoubtedly be able to tell which one I am. And if you haven't already, I'm going to tell you, all right? I will teach them all uh, because we don't know. Um, the joke is it's I'm a pan-trib. It's all going to pan out in the end. Uh, but I, I went to a school that was post trib. And so I lean very heavily towards a post-tribulation rapture. I believe that the church will go through the tribulation, that God will miraculously protect them, uh, protect us from the wrath. Um, here's what I say. Prepare for post, pray for pre. Okay, because if we can get out of it, I'm all for getting out of it. But if we can't, then we better prepare to go through it. And so we better we better just be aware of of what it is. But... Um, uh, there is uh, all kind of, even within the Alliance, the Alliance doesn't take a stance on pre, mid, or post. Um, you'll find pastors in the Alliance who are pre, you'll find pastors in the Alliance who are post. Um, not too many mid. Those are, I think those guys are just riding the fence and they can't decide. Um, so they're going, eh, somewhere in the middle. Um, so anyhow, that's the rapture when Christ is going to come for his church, okay? He's returning for his bride. Uh, the revelation of Jesus Christ. This is the coming of Christ with his bride after the rapture. Okay. So the idea is that the rapture is Jesus returns. The church goes and meets him in the air. And then the revelation of Jesus is Jesus comes back with his bride actually to earth to fight the battle of Armageddon. Um, and that is the last great, the last great battle. Um. So Christ is going to return with his bride, fight the battle of Armageddon, and set up the millennial kingdom here on earth. Kay? This is what is referred to as the second coming of Christ. Uh, Jesus is our, our uh, savior, sanctifier, healer, and coming king. This is the second coming uh, that we talk about as part of the fourfold gospel when Jesus returns with his bride. So the rapture takes place, and then Jesus and his bride uh, come back down to earth. The Battle of Armageddon is a battle described in Revelation chapter 19. This is the the final uh, showdown, if you will. Um, It doesn't last very long. Uh, 19, 17 through 20 said, And I saw an angel standing in the sun who cried in a loud voice to all the birds flying in midair. Come gather together for the great supper of God, so that you may eat the flesh of kings, generals and mighty men of horses and their riders and the flesh of all people. Free and slaves, small and great, then I saw the beast and the kings of the earth and their armies gathered together to make war against the rider on the horse and his army. But the beast was captured, and, the, and with him the false prophet who had performed the miraculous signs on his behalf, with these signs, he had deluded those who had received the mark of the beast and worshipped his image. The two of them were thrown alive into the fiery lake of burning sulphur. The rest of them were killed in the sword with the sword that came out of the mouth of the rider on the horse, and all the birds gorged themselves their flesh kind of a gruesome picture um but punishment wrath of god on sin is kind of a gruesome picture um and so we can't forget when the holiness of god meets the sinfulness of man what that clash looks like and that is a gruesome clash uh, it is a ugly picture and we must always remember sin's ugliness um because it, it will be shown for what it truly is. That battle of Armageddon is really uh, capture, swipe with the sword, all die. It doesn't last long at all. Um, so we have this great battle of Armageddon, and many of the times in our mind, we have this great, you know, the armies of the world coming, marching in, and, and the armies of God, and there's a great, no, really, it's over. Just like that. Uh, Jesus speaks, the, the Antichrist and the false prophet are captured, And all the rest are slain with the sword that comes out of of the the rider on the white horse's mouth, which is Jesus. Um, So that's the Battle of Armageddon. We need to understand that. Then, uh, kind of in the timeline, the Battle of Armageddon and then the Millennium uh, happens. It's not the spacecraft from Star Wars. That's the Millennium Falcon. It's not that. This is the Millennium is the thousand-year period initiated by Christ's return, by his revelation, by his second coming, uh, during which Satan is bound in the abyss and the church will live and reign with Christ over the earth. Okay, This is found in Revelation chapter 21 through 6. It talks about the thousand-year reign. Um, and so we're going to look at that uh, as we get there as to what, what exactly is that, who's going to reign, what's going to happen in that thousand years. There's also <coughs> different views to the millennium um there are some that say premillennial um that's the return of christ will be premillennial um prior to the millennium which makes sense because that's and that is the alliance's stance there's also an amillennial they say that the thousand years is just symbolic of christ's reign amillennialism says there's not a literal thousand year reign it's just symbolic of christ's returning and his kingdom um that is not what we believe we don't believe that the 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 Bible preaches that, um, but that it is an actual thousand-year reign of Christ on earth, (coughs) with Satan bound and out of the way. Can you imagine life with Satan bound and out of the way? Bill. Roman Catholic Church is is all-millennial. There's also a Church of God. I'm not sure if it's North Maine or not that's all-millennial. Um think it is. I think they're all millennial. That doesn't mean they're whacked. Okay. And, and 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 way out of line and scripturally off base. And that's just their view of the millennium. Um, my wife grew up in uh, Church of God Anderson, which is what North Maine is, um, and uh, but she saw the light and is now alliance. So the judgment seat of Christ. Okay, this is the place where believers will appear to give account of the deeds done in the body whether good or foolish. And to receive their rewards. 2 Corinthians talks uh, about that. 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Uh, verse 20. Does it say 10? Then let's go to 10. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. That... Each one may receive what is due him for the things done while in the body, whether good or bad. So there is a judgment. This is the, the judgment seat of Christ. This is when all the believers, all, all of our works are going to be judged. Now, it's not a salvation judgment. Okay, that's the believers. We're, we've already saved. Now we're basically kind of receiving rewards for what have been done, what we have done with this life that God has given us. Um, so we are going to be uh, rewarded uh, for Deeds that are done. Now, again, it's not salvation. We don't work for it. We work because of it, like Denny said this morning, um, that because we are saved, we work. Um, and so that judgment seat of Christ is that time when, when those works will be shown forth, uh, either as foolish or good. Um, and, uh, but it's not a judgment of saved or unsaved. That comes at the great white throne judgment. This is the final judgment of the unbelievers. You don't want to appear before the great white throne um, because there's only bad things that happen after the great white throne. Um, They will be judged, uh, all the unbelievers of all ages, and their assignment to eternal punishment in Gehenna. we'll talk about those terms in just a little bit. Um, Revelation 20, after the thousand years, after the millennium, uh, that talks about when the dead are judged uh, at the end of chapter 20. The second resurrection, this is the resurrection of all unbelievers just prior to their being judged by God at the great white throne. Okay, So up to this point, the resurrection has been believers of the rapture, all believers where the graves are emptied, go to meet Jesus in the air, come back, reign for the thousand years. And then there's the, the judgment seat of Christ where the believers are, are rewarded. Um, and then the great white throne judgment when the unbelievers are Brought up out uh, their second resurrection, if you will, and judgment uh, with that. Okay? Now, a couple terms, and if you take this sheet, we've kind of already walked through that. Uh, this is a timeline, uh, kind of, uh, and an explanation to kind of help keep things in order uh, as to where we're going. Uh, but I want to talk about those two clouds at the bottom. Okay, Sheol uh, and Hades. Uh, this <coughs> and this question gets asked to me a lot. And some of you maybe have asked this question and I've already given you this at some point. Because if anyone says, if anyone asks about, you know, what happens when someone dies now, where do they go? I pull out this sheet and this is my explanation uh, for that. Um, Sheol and Hades. Sheol is the Hebrew word. Uh, from the Old Testament, Hades is the Greek word. Um, The problem is, in English, we have one word, hell. In the Greek, they have two words, Hades and Gehenna. Okay, Hades is the cloud on the left, Gehenna is the cloud on the right. And in order to understand, you either have to go to the Greek and determine which word they are using to know which cloud they are referring to. It's not really a cloud, but that was the best way to show it. Okay, Sheol and Hades, if a person is, I'll just read to you, the temporary abode of the wicked dead until the second resurrection. It's apparently a place of torment for spirits. Sheol is the Hebrew, Hades is the Greek. If you read Luke chapter 16, that's the story of the rich man and Lazarus. That if, if you know the story, the rich man, Lazarus was a beggar, sat outside the rich man's gate, his house, every day. The rich man walked by, ignoring him. And Lazarus, lo and behold, dies. And he is taken to, do you remember what Luke calls it? Abraham's bosom. That's what they called it. And there was a great chasm, and the rich man died, and he was sent to Hades. Okay? And there was a great chasm between Abraham's bosom and Hades. And what we have there is we have a tendency to refer to that as hell. And that's that is hell, but it's not the final hell. Okay, it's not the final judgment. Um, and so anytime that someone died in the Bible or prior, you know, prior to Christ's death, they went either to Abraham's bosom, the righteous compartment of Hades, or to Hades itself, the unrighteous compartment, which is where the rich man went, separated by a great chasm. Um, and the one was a place of torment. If you remember the rich man, he was saying, you know, he could see a cross, and he could see Lazarus uh, being comforted, and and that, that it was a place he desired to be, even to the point to where he said, if you would just send someone back and let my brothers know so that they would avoid this place, so that when they die, they could be in Abraham's bosom. And of course, Jesus says, you know what, they've got everything they need. They already have all the law, the prophets, everything is there to explain to them. They just need to Adhere to it. They just need to accept it. um, That no one else needs to go to them. So if and then when when Christ died, remember the graves. He went and emptied the graves. He emptied the righteous compartment of Hades. Okay. So when he told the thief on the cross, "Today you will be with me in paradise," there is another place known as paradise. That if a believer dies. Today, that's where they go. They go to paradise. And they are awaiting the judgment seat of Christ. They're waiting for that return for the thousand-year reign. So that when Christ returns and the believers meet him in the air, that's when, when all of those come together, when the believers here and the believers that have already died come together with Jesus' reign for the thousand years. While they are waiting, they are with him in paradise. It's not heaven. It's not the final heaven. OK, I don't have that. I don't have paradise on the on the timeline. Um, But when an unbeliever dies, he goes to Hades, the unrighteous part of Hades. Um, That is still filled up and it will be full of people until the great white throne, at which point it will be emptied. And then the unbelievers will be sent to Gehenna. Okay, that's the other word. So Hades means hell, Gehenna means hell, but they're two different places and we just need to keep those straight um, because it will help us understand if a person dies today, what happens? Where do they go? Because Gehenna is right now empty. There's no one in Gehenna. Um, and the first two that are going to be there, are the Antichrist and the false prophet, and we'll look at that as we, as we walk through Revelation, they're going to be cast in there. No, it was one place separated by a great chasm. And so Abraham's bosom is what the righteous compartment of Hades was called. And they really didn't have another name other than just Hades for the unrighteous compartment. Um, But when Jesus came, he emptied the righteous compartment and took them all to be with him in paradise. And so right now, the righteous compartment's emptied. Unrighteous is still there. And as people, unbelievers die, that's where they go the unrighteous. Um, so Luke chapter 16, it's a, it's a great story um, and, uh, and a lot of information um, on what happens when a person dies, whether they're a believer or an unbeliever. Okay, so from Adam. <laughs> yes. Yeah. So in that, uh, in that righteous compartment of Hades, Abraham was there, Moses was there, Isaac was there, Adam was there. All of the believers throughout the Old Testament and up to that point in the New Testament would have gone there. Uh, and then when Christ reta- or when Christ died, He emptied that part, took them with Him to paradise. Um, and now, when an unbeliever dies, they go to be with Him in paradise, just like He told the uh, the thief on the cross. Uh, he told them, today you're going to be there because he knew he was going to die that day. But when when we as believers die, we will be with him in paradise. Uh, and that's different than the final heaven, the new heaven and the new earth. Um, so when a person dies today, they don't go to heaven. They go to paradise. Heaven is yet to come. Okay. Um, there's also some some thinking in John chapter 14. I haven't totally wrapped my head around this yet. um, That uh, John chapter 14, verses 1 to 4, he says, Do not let your hearts be troubled. This is when he's telling them that he's going to go, that he's going to be gone, he's going to have to die. And his disciples were a little upset about that, as we would be um, hearing that. He said, Don't let your hearts be troubled. Trust in God, trust also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, I would have told you. I am going there to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to be with me, that you also may be where I am. You know the way to the place where I am going. Now, a lot of times, and, and this is I'm just going to throw this out here as an idea. I'm not saying I'm right or wrong on this. This may not be referring to the final heaven. This may be referring to paradise. That I am going to go and prepare a place for you. And that when you die, I will come get you and take you to where I am. You know the way to where I'm going. And then there's a whole other heaven that's being prepared later on. Because no one that dies now goes to the final heaven. They go to be with Jesus, and Jesus is in paradise. Um, so I haven't completely wrapped my uh, head around that idea, but it kind of makes sense to me, but I'm not putting it out there as this is the way it is. I'm just giving you something to chew on, something to think about. That John 14, 1-4 may be talking more about this paradise, that that is where, you know, that's where my mom is. When my mom died, Jesus came, got her, and took her to paradise. Because he says, if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to be with me. He's talking individually there, not as a group. So I think that I will come back is not not the revelation, the second coming, but I will meet each individual as they die. And take them to be where I am, um, and you know the way uh, to get there. Uh, so that's that's kind of what happens now. Yes. Is Christ at the right hand of God? Yes. And that's where paradise is too. Apparently, yes. I mean, that is all—all all there because Jesus is right now seated at the right hand of God, um, and so we go into His presence. Um, but that heaven is a, a whole new. That's the new heaven, new earth. So I guess you could refer to it as heaven, but it's going to be the old heaven is what it'll be because there's a new heaven coming. Okay. Good question. If an unbeliever dies now, do they just go straight to the holding place or do they see Jesus and Jesus sends them there? I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> I I never been I've never been asked that question before. Um we'll look and th- and see if there is an answer. I, I don't know. Uh yeah, Greg. Yeah. To be absent for for the believer to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. So we will be in the Lord's presence. Um but with the unbeliever do they see Jesus first and then go to the unrighteous, or are they just in the unrighteous place? I don't know. I've never had that question asked before. Good question. No, right here on this earth is where the millennium will take place. That No, the new heaven and the new earth come after the judgment seat and after the great white throne. Yeah. If I had one, I would talk about it. Um, You know, I can't refute those because it's like anyone's testimony. It's their life. It's what they experienced. Um, So end of life. I saw a light at the end of a tunnel. I, you know, the little boy went to heaven, saw all these things, came back, wrote. I can't refute them, but I also can't say, yep, that's the way it is. No one ever does that. That's the amazing thing. Mm-hmm. That, that, is the ama- that is the amazing thing about those stories, is they're always heaven and come back. No one ever goes to hell and comes back. Is there one on YouTube? I've never seen it. That they went to hell and came back. To hell and back. Is that? I, we went to hell on vacation one time. That's that's true. We have the T-shirt and I have my passport stamped hell Um, because there is a city in Grand Cayman in the Cayman Islands. There is a city on Grand Cayman called hell Grand Cayman. Um, And uh, we have the shirt. My daughter has the shirt that says I've been to hell and back. Um, My passport is stamped hell Um, and we have pictures at hell. Um, It's a little shack. Uh, it's really, <laughs> but they have a post office there, and they will actually stamp your passport. So, um, so you say there is a story of someone who went to hell and came back on YouTube. Well, if it's on the internet, it's got to be true. <laughs> so, we'll go with that. In the millennium period a great number of the yeah, during that millennium, there will be people who are saved during that during that thousand year reign. Um, which is why the final judgments don't happen until the end of that reign. Okay, um, so there's your timeline, some of the major terms, scriptures. Let me just uh, kind of real quickly go through the background of the book. The author, um, I don't think it's in dispute who wrote it, John uh, the Apostle, uh, who also wrote the Gospel of John and 1st, 2nd, 3rd John. Okay, it's the same guy, Uh, James and John, the sons of Zebedee, Uh, Peter, James, and John, uh, the kind of the inner circle with Jesus of the apostles. It's that John who wrote the Revelation. Um, And uh, he uses his name. He said, you know, chapter 1, verse 1, verse 9, 22, 8. He says three times that I, John, and there's no reason to doubt that it's not John the apostle um, that wrote that. Uh, He wrote it while he was in prison. Um, on the island of Patmos, uh, chapter 1, verse 9, uh, and I was going to put a, uh, a map there. I'll give that to you next week because it's m- I couldn't decide whether I wanted to use it this week or next because next week we're going to talk about the seven churches, um, and I have a map as to where those churches are. And the island of Patmos is about, it's, it's a small island, uh, volcanic island that they used for, uh, really, to exile prisoners. It was a prison island. And it was not very big, 10 miles long, 5 miles wide. Um, It it was barren. It was a desert, volcanic, um, about 40 miles offshore. And uh, exile was a common form of punishment at that point. And so John, because of the gospel, was exiled to the island of Patmos. And it was while he was on Patmos that the angel appeared to him, that Jesus appeared to him and gave him this revelation. Um, probably written, um, well, he would be, at this time, he would be the last apostle alive, Um, which is probably why he was not martyred, uh, because Jesus wanted to reveal to him this book. And so he's going to keep him alive. So instead of being martyred for his belief, he was simply exiled. Um, If you go back to John chapter 21, When Jesus is kind of reinstating Peter, uh, he tells Peter Peter how he's going to die. Peter was hurt because Jesus asked him the third time, do you love me? He said, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. Jesus said, feed my sheep. I tell you the truth. When you were younger, you dressed yourself and went where you wanted. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and someone else will dress you and lead you where you do not want to go. And it says, Jesus said this to indicate the kind of death by which Peter would glorify God. And, and history tells us that, that Peter was crucified on a cross, that his hands were, uh, when you're old, you will, your hands will be stretched out, indicating how he will die. Now, uh, history says that, that Peter said he was unworthy to die in the same manner that Jesus died, so he asked for the cross to be turned upside down. And so Jesus was or Peter was actually crucified on a uh, inverted cross, which I think would have to be harder, more horrible than upright, not that upright was a piece of cake. Um, Jesus said this to indicate his death. Peter turned and saw the disciple whom Jesus loved, which is John, uh, was following them. Uh, This was the one who had leaned back against Jesus at the supper. When Peter saw him, he said, Lord, what about him? How's he going to die? You know, you've told me how I'm going to, I want to know what's going to happen to him. And Jesus said, if I want him to remain alive until I return, what is that to you? You must follow me. And so John basically was kept alive, uh, at least did not face a martyr's death, uh, as best we can tell, probably died on the island of Patmos um, because he wanted to reveal this word to him. That he did, that he did get, uh, uh, yeah, yeah, definitely did die. Um, Whether it was on Patmos or not, we do not know. Um, But he would be at this point, he would be the last of the apostles alive. Um, And uh, all the others dying a martyr's death uh, somewhere, uh, some way. The date, um, probably about 90 AD. This makes John about 85 or 90 years old. Okay, because he probably 20s when Jesus was around. So 85, probably about the youngest he might have been. Uh, 90, 95, probably about the oldest that he would have been uh, at this point. Okay, it was during the reign of Domitian who took over Rome, became the emperor of Rome following Nero. And if you know anything about Nero, he was the king of persecution. Uh, he, was, he was great at persecuting Christians. He knew how to do it. They had perfected it. Um, crucifixion was the most uh, horrendous way to die because they knew how to do it within, take a person within an inch of their life and keep them alive and suffer for as long as possible. Rome had gotten really good at that. Nero uh, understood how that all worked. Domitian learned from Nero and went even farther. Uh, Things were even worse under Domitian as far as the persecution was, was concerned. Um, And so things were really, really bad at this time uh, when when really the church needed hope. They needed something. They needed a word that would give them hope that this suffering was going to be brought to an end uh, because they weren't seeing it. I mean, they were just dying. They were being killed, persecuted. And uh, and so Jesus, John on the island of Patmos, Jesus appears to him and says, look, let everyone know this is what's going to happen so he writes this down. He hands it out, spreads it out to the seven churches um, that we're going to look at next week and uh, and then beyond that. So uh, the persecution of the church had continued. Uh, people were dying for their faith. Chapter two, verse 13, uh, when he's talking to one of the churches, he says, no, uh, I know where you live, where Satan has his throne. Yet you remain true to my name. You did not renounce your faith in me not even in the days of Antipas, Antipas, the faithful witness who was put to death in your city. So there are people dying. There are Christians being killed in the cities for their faith. And, uh, and so the, this was really written as a, as a message of hope uh, that Christ would return. He's going to come back and put an end to all this. Um, we mentioned, too, that this is the only book uh, where a blessing is pronounced on those who read it and keep it. Uh, Chapter one, verse three says, Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy and blessed are those who hear it and take to heart what is written in it because the time is near. And at the very end, chapter 22, John writes again, look, I'm coming soon. Blessed is the one who keeps the words of the prophecy written in this scroll. Um, And so there will be blessing in studying it Uh, at the very end. Chapter 22, verses 18 and 19 John writes, I warn everyone who hears the word of the prophecy of this scroll. If anyone adds anything to them, God will add to that person the plagues described in this scroll. And if anyone takes words away from this scroll of prophecy, God will take away from that person any share in the tree of life and in the holy city which are described in this scroll. So be careful how you interpret it. uh, Because if we add or take away, and this is intentional adding, We can make a mistake and still be all right. But it is an intentional adding to or taking away uh, from Revelation. Now, we, a lot of times, will take this verse and apply it to the whole Bible. Not that that's a bad idea. It's just not biblical. Okay? Because this verse only applies to the book, the Revelation. It doesn't apply. Because when they wrote it, the rest of them weren't all compiled into a Bible yet. Um, And so while we can't add or take away from the rest of Scripture... This verse really only applies to this one. So let me real quickly. Any questions up to this point? Yeah, Ray. Much Not much. I mean, it, it's, it's a semantic thing. Uh, there's, there's no change of meaning, no change of principle. Um, a lot of like our translation with NIV pretty much just takes the Greek and makes it readable. Um, because if I were to read to you my professor's literal translation, uh, you wouldn't understand it. It would be like reading Greek Um, because the the words are not in the order that we put them in. And so a lot of that with the translations is just making it readable. Um, But the principle is there. um, You know, the the facts are the same. Uh, There may be a different word um, type thing, which, again, is why... Greek is helpful because we can go back to the original meaning. a um, a lot of it could have been because of where the they were at the time a lot of that like the gospels may not have been circulated all through and so this is one that kind of summed it all up into one book and said and and the blessing could be the hope that comes that suffering will end that persecution will end and so there the blessing is the hope and the joy that you can get from understanding I mean uh, well that yeah that we can we can look into that we may not know the answer to that but somehow it did get off the island and get passed around to the seven churches jake T- where we're at. Yeah, the overall timeline. I think it's very, it's oh. very, yeah, it's it's very significant um, with that. Uh, with Israel being reestablished as a nation um, and holding their their nationality and their statehood uh, is is very critical to the the overall timeline. The four ways to, and let me just end with these our approach to interpreting the revelation. There's four ways. The preterist, the preterists believe that the events of the revelation are meant for the people and culture of which it was written, and that all of the events in Revelation have already taken place. Um, <clears throat> that the the second coming of Christ is seen in some of the events of history. Um, some would put them back to the destruction of Jerusalem. would have been part of that, as well as the fall of Rome would have been seen as that. Now, we don't hold to that um, simply because then we don't need it. If all that's already taken place and isn't going to happen, if it's not a future for us, then we wouldn't need the book. Right. The millennium hasn't happened. The historicist... Uh, believes that Revelation is viewed as an overview of church history from the time of the apostles until now. Uh, That they will go back and find events in history that point to passages in the text. And this is kind of a maybe, maybe not. You know, because Hitler was seen as the Antichrist. Um, You know, every kind of generation has picked someone who they thought was the Antichrist and point back to. Um, So the historicist... Uh, They don't look at it as a future. They look at it more as a timeline from the apostles until present. And you can look and see the events happening. Um, Two problems exist. It would have no prophetic emphasis. Otherwise, it would not be future. But the book calls itself a prophecy on more than one occasion. So it is a future happening. Um, And it would hold no meaning for the first century church to which it was given. Um, if it is if it is stages in church or in history then it wouldn't have any any say for the people who were living in that day does that make sense Uh, it would all be totally future for them and not have any meaning for them Uh, to where this is a culmination of all of history is what this prophecy is and so it has meaning for everyone Uh, because this is the end and this is the end of, of history the idealist Uh, they say that the revelation is to be understood as an explanation of the principles of good versus evil and not really things that are going to happen. Okay, it's simply told to illustrate spiritual truth. It's not fact. These things aren't really going to happen. That's the idealist. This removes any connection with history, past, or future. Um, Now, the futurist, this is the view we take. Uh, this is how we will interpret and, and try to understand uh, this book. This is the view that understands the Revelation to be a forecast of future events. Okay, From chapter 4 on, because chapter 1 is the introduction, 2 and 3 are the ch- letters to the seven churches, from 4 on is all future events. Those are all things that they, they haven't happened yet. They're going to happen sometime in the future. Um, Paul believed very soon, so I've got to believe very sooner, because <laughs> we're, we're, we're 1,500, 2,000 years away from Paul, and Paul thought they were going to be very soon. Um, so we maintain that it is prophetic, um, and uh, that it's that it's all future events. Keywords throughout the, and this is kind of a lead into where we are going next week as we look at the seven letters, the seven churches, um, do you know what he said at the end of every letter? Yes. He said, He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. That means it was meant for them and it's meant for us and that we really need to pay attention to what is happening. Um, We don't need the details. We don't need the minute details. God's painted the big picture, given us the timeline. Uh, Matthew 24 and 25 gives us some signs of things that have to occur, and then the end will come. Uh, and so we can be looking for those, so that, as Paul says, I don't want any of you to be ignorant about it. I, I don't. You, you won't be caught off guard. No one's going to take the mark of the beast by accident. So it's not on your credit card. Okay, you don't have to worry about that. No one's going to be tricked into it. It's going to be a conscious choice to take. Okay, so. Really, it's just laying things out so that we're aware, so that we can make right decisions. This is all part of what Peter says God has given us everything we need to live a godly life. This is part of what we need. We need to know how to prepare for the future. This should be a very encouraging study uh, because God is telling us what he will be doing in the future. And I have already read the end. It ends well for us, for the believer. It's a happy ending for the believer. So it should, should be a, a source of joy and a source of comfort and encouragement as we go through it. It will also be a source of confusion and frustration, um, trying to figure out the beast with four heads and the eight arms and the ten horns and the, all of those things. And we might be able to paint a good picture of those and we might just leave with its confusion and I don't know. Um, I don't know is always a good answer when you don't know. Um, and so if, if it was, if it's something that we really, truly had to know for sure, God would have made it very plain to us. Um, so we're going to go through and just walk through this journey uh, through the book and uh, see where we go. And if Jesus tarries 10 weeks, then we'll get to the end. Otherwise, we'll live it. How great would that be? Maybe in June, he'll come back and we'll just live it all out right after we study it. That's a pre-trib rapture picture, so I'm pretty sure that's not going to happen. Yeah, Pastor Denny is pre-trib. Yeah, Pastor Denny's pre-trib, I'm post-trib, we just don't ever talk about it. <laughs> so, yes. Um, it is mentioned, maybe not necessarily in Revelation, but it is mentioned in some of the other, um, and the fact that Jesus tells us what's going to go on during the tribulation, if we weren't there, we wouldn't need to know it, but the fact that he tells us, tells me, I probably need to know it. <coughs> yes. Yeah, they, it's seven ages of church history rather than literal churches, um. I don't go for that view either, but we'll talk about that next week. Um, I guess I had this question uh, because uh, of the Saint Malachi's prophecy, which is not in the Bible, but it talks about the next and the false prophet. Is the false prophet supposed to come on the playing field when the Antichrist does? Or It'll all be about that same time, yes. And we'll get there when we when we hit that point. We'll talk about who. the the antichrist the false prophet and satan those, that's the unholy trinity is satan the antichrist and the false prophet those are three separate individuals okay great questions hopefully we'll get some more answers uh as we go along and uh we'll see you next week you. have a good one